in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they, this is Psalm 32, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? That is for Jews. Or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. You ever been in a situation where people dear to you are having trouble with each other? Their conflict hurts you, and you'd like to help, You want them to love each other, to work together, to be glad that they're in relationship. You want all this, but they're a thousand miles away. And you feel impotent. I think that was the situation in which Paul found himself when he wrote Romans. He'd heard, probably through his close friends, Priscilla and Aquila, that there was trouble in the Roman church. Trouble that started after the Emperor Nero lifted the immigration ban on Jews and the Jewish Christians had returned. Now, historians now aren't quite sure how long they were gone. You see, Claudius had banned, expelled all the Jews in Rome. And historians aren't sure now how long they were gone, but estimates range from about four years to about a dozen years. But when they came back, they discovered that the church had changed while they were gone. You know, they... They sang all the old hymns to organ accompaniment when they left, and when they came back, there was a worship band with electric guitars and drums. Okay, that's not quite right, but it'll give you the idea. When they left, their meetings were like a synagogue meeting, except that they recognized and worshiped Jesus as Messiah. When they left, the Torah, Jewish law, had a prominent place in their gatherings. It wasn't so when they came back. To them, the gatherings now felt more like a meeting of the local guild than a gathering of the local church. So, of course, there were conflicts, there were tensions, debates. What place did the Jewish law have in their church? What about circumcision, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? It was still important, right? What about the Torah's kosher laws? What about the prescribed festivals? How did all that fit in? Paul, writing from about 800 miles away, he's over in Corinth, Greece, wants to help the church weather this storm, get along with each other, come out stronger on the other side. But he knows there are theological misunderstandings that lay behind these conflicts and must be resolved. There are some basics upon which both Jewish and Gentile Christians must agree 
One of those basics has to do with the way a person finds acceptance by God and welcome among his people. How does that happen? Some Jewish Christians assumed that God's acceptance hinged on a person's covenant status. Paul would agree with that completely. But they took for granted that covenant status was confirmed on Abraham's descendants, Jewish people, who had undergone circumcision just as Abraham had. No circumcision, no covenant status. No covenant status, no acceptance within God's people. No acceptance within God's people, no participation in the coming kingdom. Well, Paul could see a serious flaw in that line of reasoning. These Jewish Christians who believed covenant status was conferred through circumcision, they also believed it was maintained by keeping covenant law, Torah, and especially the dietary laws and the festival commitments, the things that most clearly distinguished them from the Gentiles. So from 800 miles away, Paul could see where the problem in the Roman church was rooted. And if it was going to be resolved, a basic question had to be answered. How do people receive covenant status with God? That is, how are people justified? On what basis is acceptance into God's people conferred? Paul answers that question by going all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, the first person to receive that covenant status. And he rephrases the question this way. How was Abraham justified? He knows he needs to tread carefully here. The Jewish community heroized Abraham. If they thought for a moment that Paul was diminishing his stature, they'd never listen to another word he said. So you can find that attitude, by the way, in, in ancient Jewish literature, throughout ancient Jewish literature. The book of Jubilee said that Abraham was perfect in all his ways. Another ancient source said, Abraham has not sinned and he has no mercy on sinners. If Paul were to suggest otherwise, he would lose his hearing among Jews. Once, when we were in the old building, I was preaching on Abraham. Just to tell you this story, just to illustrate this mindset. I was preaching on Abraham, and I suggested Abraham was wrong to pretend his wife Sarah was his sister. By doing that, he placed both her life and her chastity at risk. And when I said that, there were two Muslim men in the congregation, and they stood up noisily, and they marched out in protest so that everybody could see they were protesting. That attitude of theirs was very much like the attitude of Jews in Paul's day towards Abraham. I talked with them later, and they argued with me. Abraham was perfect. He never sinned, and they were deeply offended by the suggestion that he had. One rabbinic source from Paul's time claims that Abraham didn't have to repent because he'd never sinned. Another argues that Abraham performed the whole law, the Mosaic law, before it was given. And Philo, a, a highly regarded Jewish thinker just prior to Paul's time, of whom Paul would have been well acquainted, said that God's promise to Abraham was in repayment for Abraham's faithfulness. So when Paul chooses Abraham to prove a point, 
that point comes at the end of a double-edged sword, and he knows it. The Jews revered Abraham and believed he had earned God's favor by his good works, even by perfectly keeping the law, which wasn't going to be given for another 400 years. And that brings us back to the question, how does a person get right? How is a person accepted by God? Most people in Paul's day and in ours think that happens by being part of the right religion. Some people then and now believe it happens by doing the right things, either participating in religious rituals or stacking up charitable deeds. Paul thought that was wrong. And he thought he could prove it. And who better to prove it by than the man who was every Jew's hero, Abraham. So verse 1, what shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Did he, verse 2, find himself justified by works, that is, by obedience to God, or by keeping the not yet written law, or did it happen in some other way? At this point, verse 3, Paul asks, a wise question, one that we would do well to always keep in mind. What does the scripture say? The particular scripture he has in mind is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, before we can see where Paul's going with this scripture and the way he goes with this scripture, we're only going to look at part of it today. It's sort of like the hub of a wheel with spokes going out in every which direction. Before we can understand where he's going with this, we need to understand how he thinks of, of the terms that he's using, how he defines terms. The, the word credited, for example, is an important word here. It translates a Greek word that's used a remarkable 11 times in this chapter. In verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 11, 22, 23, and 24, Paul uses the phrase credit righteousness as a virtual synonym for the term justify. When Paul says that Abraham's act of believing God, and I say act of believing God, he's not talking about some general disposition Abraham had. You know, I talk to people a lot, and they, they say, oh, I've always believed in God. He's not talking about that at all. Abraham made a choice to believe God, and believing God in that situation was credited to him as righteousness. When he says that, what does he have in mind? He means, I think, that Abraham's status before God himself was changed when he believed. Before he believed, he was not a member of God's people. He belonged to another jurisdiction, another kingdom. When he believed, he was justified. He was approved, given status, accepted into God's realm as God's person. And maybe I can illustrate this. One of my best friends in the world was a citizen of a Muslim-majority country, Bangladesh. In 1975, he came to the U.S. on an educational visa, and we met, and we became fast friends. While he was still at college, he got a job cleaning on a cleaning crew at the local bank. The bank president noticed what excellent work he did, and so he hired him away from the cleaning crew. And he started him in data input. He got a, uh, another degree, he got a raise, he got a promotion. A couple years later, another company hired him away for their IT department. He got married, he got a green card, but he still was not a citizen of the United States. That didn't happen until sometime in the late 80s, or early 90s. 
He, he went to classes. He learned the Constitution, knows it way better than I do, and was granted citizenship. He's one of the most patriotic Americans I know. But until he took his oath, he was not a citizen. He lacked that status. He was with us, but he was not one of us. That's parallel to Paul's idea of being justified, or as he puts it, being credited or counted or reckoned righteous. When God reckons a person righteous, when he justifies him, he is admitting him or her into his people, making him or her a citizen of the kingdom of heaven with all its rights and responsibilities. And that happens even before the kingdom triumphs, even while other kingdoms are in power. Based on Scripture, Paul insists Abraham's faith was the criterion upon which his covenant status was conferred. Not circumcision, not works, but faith. And then in verse 10, he asks the important question, when did God confer on Abraham the status of righteous? When did he accept him into his people? When did he justify him? Was it after Abraham proved himself? Was it after a trial period in which Abraham obeyed all of God's laws? Was it after he offered Isaac? Was it after he agreed to be circumcised and received the sign of the covenant cut into his flesh? That question is important because at the most basic level, and Paul knows this, it's a question about whether we earn God's acceptance or are gifted with it. Do we buy our way into God's people by religion, by rule-keeping, are we graced with acceptance? Some Jewish readers had a clear answer to that question. They said God granted Abraham covenant status, approved status, accepted status, after he proved himself by being circumcised and becoming obedient to God's law. Paul is more interested in what Scripture says than in what they say. So what does the Scripture say? Remember? And Scripture says that covenant status was conferred on Abraham before he was circumcised and before he had proven himself. In fact, while he was still a Gentile. Verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Abraham was not accepted into God's people because he became a Jew because he was circumcised. He became a Jew, was circumcised, because he was accepted into God's people. The evidence that a person has been justified, accepted by God, is not circumcision, but faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham was circumcised, and it was credited to him as righteousness, not Abraham became religious or kept the rules and it was credited to him as righteousness. No, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul wants to make sure his readers understand the profound implications of this discovery. Covenant membership, acceptance with God, is not based on religion and it never was. People missed that in Paul's day, and they miss it in ours. They can't seem to get it through their heads. God accepts people 
who accept his son. It's just that simple. He admits people into his kingdom who have faith in the king. He confesses us to be his people who confess Jesus to be our Lord. It's not religion, whether the Jewish religion or Christian religion or any other religion. It's faith. You know, sometimes I've had people say to me, oh, I'm very religious. And I want to say, so what? <laughs> who cares? It's faith. People often say, it's not religion, it's relationship. And that's true, but understand what that means. It is a faith relationship with Jesus who died to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom where he is Lord. When I was in the hospital a couple weeks ago, I talked to a woman who came in to take my blood. You know, I mean, she's sticking needles in you, you might as well talk to her, right? And I talked to her about Christ. And some of the nurses who had been there earlier, when they found out I was a pastor, their, their uh, demeanor towards me changed immediately. But this woman, she's, she started engaging me in conversation. And from her first response, I assumed she was one of God's people. So I asked her what church she was part of, and she told me she'd stopped going to church because of some problems. And I urged her to get back in church, if not that church, another church. And I told her why, and we had a good talk, and she promised she would, and I was glad. And then with one foot in the hallway and, and her hand on the door, she said, I just hope I've done enough that God will let me in. And then she was gone, and I didn't see her again. And I was laying in my bed sputtering, no, what? No, 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 what? But it was too late. She thought she had to earn her way. She thought she could earn her way. She thought acceptance into God's people was based on what she'd done rather than on what God had done through Christ. She thought she could buy her way in. We learned recently on the news, it's something I never knew before, but that resident status in the U.S. and, and a path to citizenship at least a potential path to citizenship, can be bought if you have enough money. It's called the EB-5 visa program. If you invest at least a million dollars in a U.S. business, and from what I heard, it sounds like it's more like five million now, but if you invest this money in a business, you could be awarded a visa with the prospect of applying for citizenship down the road. Listen, God's kingdom does not have an EB-5 visa program or anything like it. If you want to be in the kingdom, come. If you want to align yourself with the king, he'll take you in. Investment in religion isn't necessary, but trust in God is. The criterion for entrance is faith. Not tacit acceptance of certain biblical doctrines, but faith in Jesus the Lord. It's so hard for people to wrap their minds around this. And I think it's because we are such a religious country. People think that they want to go to heaven. And they certainly want their children to go to heaven. But they don't care about, think about, or serve the Lord of heaven. They're not the least bit interested in him. Nor are they in any way loyal to him. When this age comes to an end, either for them personally or for the entire world, when the kingdom of God is established and the kingdoms of this world destroyed or brought into submission, 
They think they're going to stand before the judge and say, I went to church, you know, sometimes anyway, and um, I tried not to hurt anybody, and, and I tipped servers really well, and I, I read through the Bible once, except for Leviticus and uh, prophets I can't remember, and, and the judge will say, I know those who are mine. That's 2 Timothy. And you're not one of them. I never knew you. It's not religion. It's a faith relationship with Jesus the Lord. It's not being nice. It's trusting Christ the King. It's not being circumcised, baptized, or catechized. It's not taking part in feast days or religious festivals. And look, I'm not criticizing those things. They have their place. But they can't replace faith in the Lord of the kingdom. The question is not whether you want to go to heaven. Many people who say they want to go to heaven really just want to avoid hell, and it's not the same thing. Heaven has nothing for you. In fact, it'll be torture to you who are not faithful to or confident in Jesus. If Jesus holds no interest for you, heaven will hold no interest for you either. If you could get into heaven without Jesus, and I want you to know that you can't, you'd be trying your best to get back out. All right, now Paul's made his point. Abraham wasn't accepted as a result of being circumcised. He was circumcised as a sign he'd already been accepted. He wasn't accepted because he obeyed rules. He obeyed God because he was accepted. And if the example of the father of the Jewish people wasn't enough, Paul added, for good measure, the example of Israel's greatest warrior and king. David, he writes in verse 6, says the same thing. Now that's Psalm 32 where he, he'd written it. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will never count. That's the same word we've been seeing. Credit reason, reckon, consider, never count against him. So let me ask a question. When God decides whether or not to confer kingdom status on someone, how is it possible that that person's sins wouldn't be counted against him or her? The root of sin, as we saw in the last few weeks, is the rejection of the God into whose kingdom we're requesting admission. So how could it not be held against us, our sins? But remarkably, they are not. Whatever a person's past, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ in the present removes any prejudice caused by sin. Whatever those sins were, God the judge really can't see a person's heart. He knows whether or not a person believes in Jesus and knows what real faith, even though it starts so small and weak, will do in a person's life. Paul's point, once again, is that God justifies. He accepts, he confers kingdom citizenship on both religious people and irreligious people based on a single criterion. Faith in the king. Faith in Jesus. Doesn't matter how religious you are. If you don't have faith in Jesus, God will turn you away. 
It doesn't matter how irreligious you have been. If you have faith in Jesus, God will accept you. Paul makes that point in language his first century readers, and maybe today's readers, would find shocking. He says, this is verse 5, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. When a first century reader came to that phrase, God who justifies the wicked or better the ungodly, as the NIV 2011 has it, he would have stopped and read it again, sure that he'd misread it the first time. How can the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished, that's Exodus 34 and God's great revelation of himself to Moses, but we find it all over the Old Testament. How does God who does not leave the guilty unpunished justify the ungodly? And the answer is through sin-cleansing, life-transforming, love-embracing, obedience-rendering faith in Jesus who died in our place. Okay, let's wrap this up. If you, like the nurse I had recently, have been hoping you've done enough to gain God's favor and get in, I've got disappointing news for you. You can't get in that way. And even if you could, you wouldn't like it. If you think that going to church or synagogue or having a religious disposition, that one always kills me, is what God counts as righteous, I have more bad news for you. Religion doesn't impress him at all. But I also have good news. The best news. God wants you. He really does. He's cleared all the hurdles and guaranteed your acceptance. He's invited you to join him, to join in the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, if you complain, but you're saying, I can't join him unless I have faith in Jesus, my response is, what do you think joining him means? That's how you join him. The apostle John put it this way, no one who denies the son has the father. But whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I have more good news for you. Paul is telling us that God is not hung up on your past. Instead, he's opened the door to your future. If you've been telling yourself that God could never forgive you for what you've done, you could not be more wrong. There's only one sin he will not forgive. And that is the sin of ignoring and rejecting his son and refusing to believe in him. God is not looking for reasons to exclude you. He has a reason to include you, one that is incredibly important to him. Jesus. Remember Paul's surprising words about the God who justifies the ungodly? Why on earth would he do that? Because, as he's going to say in the next chapter, Christ died for the ungodly. The one who has the right to keep you out 
is the very one who died to bring you in. That's good news. And this is our God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's like. Let's bow in humble gratitude and live in glad obedience. Let's pray. Of God who justifies the ungodly, who justifies us, who have faith in Jesus Christ, we bless you. Lord, we've gotten all mixed up and we thought we could do this on our own. We've tried to be you, making decisions that aren't ours to make. Lord, forgive us. And find us in your Son, the people who trust in him. And we ask this not because of any good things we've done, but because of your mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.